0: Oh, and welcome to the Two View, the cutting-edge educational and this evening interactive show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. And hey, whoever else is along for the ride tonight too, thanks for being here. My name is Michael Sharma. I am a practicing emergency medicine and urgent care PA in the Dallas, Texas area and an adjunct professor of PA studies.
1: Well, hey, Mike, I'm Martha Roberts. I'm an emergency medicine nurse practitioner and assistant professor in Northern California.
0: I feel like I have uh, finally have my intranasal fluticasone levels up to a good steady state. Nice to finally be able to breathe through my nose again, Uh, just in time for my daughter to graduate from high school and for me to get congested from all the crying I'll be doing. (laughs) By the time you hear this, she may have already tossed her cap up in the air. We are super excited for Geeka, as her brother calls her. Martha, how about your daughter? Her graduation is uh, right around the corner as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Those 10 years from now, they're coming up real quick. I already told her I'm going to homeschool her for college. So what's the plan?
0: I mean, you have uh, three or four degrees. You probably have at least two more degrees than anybody else who would be teaching her would have. I think you're fully qualified.
1: We'll see. I didn't really uh, do the whole first grade teaching very well. So, you know, we're still working on my mathematics of first grade.
0: Well, as long as she doesn't major in math, you would be all right, I think, in college. (laughs) Well, look, it'll be here before you know it. Uh, I'm also personally really excited to be starting up some new educational activities. In addition to getting into some PA board review coming up pretty quickly and other clinical medical teaching, I'll be the instructor for the EKG portion of the Diagnostic Methods class at the South University PA program in Austin, Texas this summer. Hello, South University students. If you're listening, never too early to start shopping for a nice set of EKG calories. And uh, don't worry, this podcast will not be on the next exam. Mercy College of Ohio, I still got you too. I'll be bringing some EKG goodness your way in the fall still. But before the fall, Martha, I know you're excited. You're always excited to get that email from Diane Birnbomber. It's it's something that I get looking forward to every year.
1: Yes, I recently got the email that said your slides are due soon. And this year, we're actually taking on a few new... um, projects, I would say. So uh, Dr. Rick Bucata is handing over some of his talks, um, so humbly and kind. I'm picking up a couple of his talks. I know, Mike, you're going to pick up a few things. And we're really going to make this an incredible session. So remember the boot camp, it'll be in July, the first session. And at the end of the segment, we're going to tell you more details on this. But it's at Caesars Palace this year. And for all the details, you can go to ccme.org. And we really hope we see you there. It's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Well, like I mentioned, uh, this one's going to be interactive because of the interactive nature of our final discussion coming up here. All these 2023 coding changes, First off, we actually have something at CCME at the Center for Medical Education about those coding changes. So stay tuned for that if you really want to go next level, as I say. Um, But for now, love to see you in the chat window if you're watching on YouTube at ccmelive.org. That is kind of our YouTube home for things here. So we'll love to see you in the chat. We'll be shouting you out here and we'll be kind of asking some questions and hearing your pain points in the chat. If you have any questions, concerns, things you want to address about coding or anything else we talk about today, like get us in the chat and and we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here. Okay. Well, awesome. it's time for our first segment, The Wet Read, where Martha and I get 60 quick seconds or so to talk about something that caught our eye.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this month I'm kind of changing things up a little bit, Mike. I wanted to focus specifically on something that I think is going to be rewarding and fun in and- the For a variety of reasons, okay? So I want to start off by talking about what to integrate into your life right now, if you haven't already. And this advice comes from the SAGE advice from my PEDS EM group at UCSF and the San Francisco General. The advice is to attend and participate in your residency grand rounds, lectures, and procedural workshops. So let me explain. The physicians that I work with are truly my guiding light. They are an inspiration to watch and their level of ability to practice medicine and care for patients is incredible in our ED. The most rewarding time, though, I found for me is to watch them teach others. And I absolutely love watching them teach something they're so passionate about. They haven't lost their spark. Even Dr. Alan Gelb, who's been there for multiple decades, loves teaching and I love watching him. They all make it look so easy, right? Well, sometimes they forget things um, just like me and I can see their wheels clicking and turning and poof, all of a sudden it's like they're back riding their bike and it's pretty cool to watch. It makes me want to do better. It allows me to learn their practice. So when we work together, we can work harmoniously. So I attend a few of these teaching sessions. I've Been to a couple of them virtually over the past few years, and now that the COVID restrictions have been quote lifted, uh, we can maybe attend again, even in person.
0: No, my gosh, it's it's so nice to have that opportunity, just to have that um, in in the same space uh, interaction. You know, know, look, we're all working professionals to some degree, even if you can only attend a short time one of these talks, maybe just for. 30 minutes before you head off to a shift or just like once in a while every you know other month or so attending these residency rounds these practice workshops with teachers are going to help you grow as a clinician and grow with your team sometimes you just learn stuff you're not even expecting to learn i've never been in an academic hospital until this year and i am just in heaven, Frank, with all the different educational opportunities that I have. It's so it's so nice. Um, even if you work for a corporation of some sort, a private corporation, there's probably some sort of continuing education. They do their equivalent of ground rounds. Uh, I highly recommend in just taking the time and uh, it's going to feel like a sacrifice. But once you do, I think you will be so glad that you did.
1: Absolutely. And you know what? The literature supports rounds and in-house ED hospital teaching when done in an effective way. So I do want to mention that when you do a literature search on Grand Rounds and um, some of the integrative methods that people have put into the hospital to teach everyone, it, it can seem a little bit dicey. So there's a way to make this experience work for you and your colleagues. And why not join and add your input? I'm really lucky to have the physician educators in my shop, and I value the opinions of our nurse practitioners. Some of those nurse practitioners have practiced at the general for over 20 years, and I love that I can go to certain people for expert advice. You know, I got Karen, who's done um, street medicine, I have Sharon, who has literally seen every single patient in the San Francisco area, and I have Tina and Gabe. And Christina, I mean, the list goes on. I know Mark just got his 20 year veteran there. Um, Jen, I mean, I have to give them all shout outs because they're just wonderful people. Um, so, yeah, don't don't take this for granted. Go to the lectures. You won't be sorry.
0: I think it's great. You know, the shout outs here. I hope they're listening. Those people that are you're shouting out here.
1: <laughs> I hope so. Too. Well, <laughs>
0: Maybe you've watched the HBO show The Last of Us where the world was overrun by fungus. I know it was a video game first. Take it easy, fellow nerds. The reality is that we need more fungus these days. Mm -hmm. Penicillin G benzathine, trade name Bicillin LA, was announced by the Food and Drug Administration to be on shortage as of late April 2023. And the World Health Organization reports a global shortage as well. The cause is increased demand from a spike in syphilis and strep throat cases. Uh, Not in the same person, I hope. Anyways, uh, the CDC reports that the U.S. hit a 70-year high for syphilis cases in 2021, the last year when he had numbers available. Way to go, syphilis. Great job. (laughs) Plus, strep throat incidence continues to be high. Don't worry. The FDA says this should be fixed in October. My recommendation... Don't waste penicillin shots on people with strep throat. It's such a minor infection in most cases. If they can't swallow pills, tell them to get a pill crusher and a 10 day supply of pudding. Mm-mm-mm. penicillin and pudding. It's like peanut butter and jelly.
1: That's gross, Mike. Come on. Don't don't lie to them. Nobody likes a liar. But I will say actually a note from Jeannie. Jeannie, one of the nurse practitioners that I work with, who's been practicing in this field forever. She also works at Stanford. She Jeannie Hoffman, you know, reminded me every single shift. She's like, but, you know, Martha, it could be syphilis. It could be right. It could be. And I'm like, you know, I can't argue with you. It Absolutely. Could <laughs> it could be. Now, where's the pudding? I'm hungry. <laughs>
0: Well, next uh, is dry scan where we penetrate a little deeper into two other topics. And Martha, you're on an educational role right now.
1: Yeah, you know, Mike, I debated about putting this into our podcast this month, but I got to tell you, I've been seeing more and more people for this issue. And then I got a case study in my email box. I'll tell you a little more about that, which inspired this segment. And I think it's um, definitely out of my wheelhouse as far as the end game for these patients like the grand scheme of what happens to these patients I'll tell you the diagnosis in a middle in a minute but it really kind of allowed me to kind of flex my brain and understand a little bit more about how horrible this one particular disease is affecting people all across the world so i want to talk about and highlight a medscare health care case study challenge first off no kickbacks from medscape i don't work for them They've given me no money or fame. And although that would be nice, uh, they give great out education. They give it out for free. And so I'm going to throw them a bone. And you know what? You can subscribe to any case study challenge you want. Lots of websites offer them. You can subscribe for free to almost all of them. And you know what? If I don't want to read it, i delete it. But sometimes something catches my eye and I thought, oh, wow, this one's really interesting. So if you have a chance, take a look at some of these case study challenges from Medscape. I think they're really great. And they have a really a uh, robust team of clinicians writing for them, which is why I like them. So this case was reviewed at the end of the month, like I said, in a 51 year old female who quote lost her job due to cognitive decline. I'm already interested. like what's happening here? like that's that's not that far off for me. So before we yeah. go into this case study, I want to acknowledge that, I realize this is not necessarily all emergency medicine. This is not all something that you would be doing, but I like the way that it made my brain think to expect the next patient with this diagnosis and think, oh my gosh, I might be missing this. Um, so, you know, I'm a little burnout on trauma and MIs and PE, which of course we're going to talk about later, but whatever. Right. Sometimes I like to read more about pediatric care cases, lawsuit cases, and family practice cases such as this.
0: Full disclosure, I was actually reimbursed by Medscape for a couple of things for a while. Um, not currently, and that did not play any part at all in our discussion here. You know, sometimes I don't like being everything to everyone in the ED. Like, I really am not the person to write a letter to your landlord that no one else will write about how important it is for you to move out of your apartment because you think you saw somebody black mold, or maybe you should be allowed to stay in your rental because you need your emotional support, EMU. Uh, But but sometimes people come to the ED because they need paper of some sort, uh, a work note to go back to work, workman's comp stuff, some chronic issues documented, maybe concerns about malpractice, for outside facilities, or they need a referral because of like insurance nightmares, or maybe they're in your ED because there's nowhere else to turn. And they have a problem that no one else can figure out or no one else has the resources to bring to bear like we do, even the situation. Maybe it's not necessarily a true medical emergency in that sense. Sometimes there are situations, especially when social determinants of health play a part, where the right thing to do is the million-dollar workup or at least the 500 k workup, a a prolonged ED stay, and and maybe even admission to expedite future care. Sometimes these are the patients I help the most in a given week or month and end up remembering for the rest of my career.
1: Yeah. So this topic that we want to bring to light is that of Alzheimer's and other dementia-causing diseases. They really are a cruel beast. They are memory killers, and they've been in the news a lot lately. I think we have basically mm, a really heavy population of aging parents right now our baby boomers, and many of them in their 70s include celebrities and famous figures that we've grown up with. Sadly, I don't think these dementia diseases have gotten as much attention as I would have liked them to have until some famous people spoke out about them. People like Tony Bennett, Bruce Willis, Robin Williams. They're all some of those that showcased what the life was like with dementia. I'll Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia are affecting younger people more and more. And that's why I wanted to bring this into light, right? So we know that altered mental status can present to the ER primary care trailing with a complicated list of possible culprits, everything from drugs and alcohol trauma, tumors, infection, neurological issues, electrolyte imbalances. The laundry list is very long and we're not going to get into all the causes for altered mental status today, but I do want to highlight a few things about this case.
0: Right. Here's the case you brought to me. Uh, A 51 year old woman is brought in by her husband, who reports that she's had slowly progressive cognitive decline for about two years. Her initial symptoms included memory loss, forgetting conversations, repeating herself, repeating herself. Just kidding. uh, And asking the same question within a short period. She had been working as a mortgage underwriter for 20 years and was laid off from her job about 18 months ago. She took another position doing similar but less demanding job stuff and was let go from that job too seven months ago. Her husband notes that she was having difficulty remembering even the password she would use to access her computer systems that she used every day.
1: Yeah, so wow, if the password thing is her problem, I should be concerned about my own inability to remember my passwords, daily, Mike, but... <laughs> Um, I don't even know what day it is. Uh, I think it's, is it Monday?
0: If they wouldn't make you change your password every freaking three months, I wouldn't have a problem remembering <laughs> it, honestly, okay?
1: Yeah, well, the other thing is I'm watching the nurse in the triage area saying this to the patient. Uh, two years, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. different about it today? Huh? <laughs> why, why the heck are you here? You know, I hate that. I can't stand it when I hear people talk to other human beings like that. Well, clearly something's different today. Or you know what? They really just need help. So the case goes on. The patient has had difficulty remembering names of characters and TV shows that she's watched. She goes on and on about these things that she really can't remember. She can't write checks. Her husband's taking over the bills, you know, and it's already a lot of information here. Um, But just familiar things that she's not able to recognize anymore. But she's in relatively good spirits. She seems pretty healthy. Um, She has a couple episodes of anxiety here and there, which we'll talk about. Interestingly enough, with anxiety and depression related to dementia diseases, but we get a really good history here. We find nothing but IBS in the past. Like I said, she's healthy. She's taken over-the-counter vitamins, no focal neurological symptoms, headaches, fevers, seizures, no trauma, no drug or alcohol use. And both her parents are age 72 years and cognitively healthy. Hmm.
0: Well she also had normal vital signs a normal BMI she's again pleasant with you know fluent coherent speech but she has a hard time really contributing spontaneously to the history unless she's asked questions kind of prompted for information. The physical exam is also non-contributory. In terms of cognitive stuff, she got a 24 out of 30 on the mini mental status exam, uh, missing four points on orientation. One on recall on one point on that uh, intersecting Pentagon business.
1: Again, Mike, I don't know if I'm doing the Pentagon thing right ever, but okay, it's a thing. So yeah. Yeah, What what
0: uh, shifts am I on? How many days am I on as far as my shifts in a row? That depends on where I'm going to be for this test.
1: Right. So this is the point where as emergency clinicians were like, oh, my God, it stops here. You said mini mental exam. I don't do those in the emergency department. Well, you know what? Maybe this is one of those things that you can now do or you can now call the neurologist and be like, I had an extra 90 seconds to do this. And I got some really good information from it. And and hey, you know, maybe you don't have time and maybe you end up discharging this patient because she's other. It's not an emergency. Right. But wait, wait, let's go on. Okay, so let's just say, in this case, you're concerned. And you know what? I'm concerned. I am concerned about this patient. Neurology comes down, and they did a more intricate testing, and they ordered that STAT MRI. We're worried it could be something else, um, which I understand in many hospitals does not get done. But in this case, at the general, we get MRIs done. A brain MRI with and without gadolinium reveals generalized atrophy, greater than expected for the patient's age with notable bilateral hippocampal atrophy and minimal white matter hyperintensities, excuse me, hyperintensities that do not enhance. And I I mean, again, nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, we all kind of know that this kind of lingo, it it ain't good like something in the brain don't look normal. And I'm learning here, new MRI mumbo jumbo and looking at the images. I mean, they are truly incredible. And you know, I love giving shout outs to radiologists. They are incredibly brilliant, well-trained people. And I just love hearing them speak. It makes me feel, I'm always impressed. They could say any word and I'm impressed. So I'm looking at the labs and the CBC, the BMP, HIV, TSH, LP, they're all done. Everything is done, right? These are those patients that get that full altered mental status workup, which I find so fascinating. And what you get back immediately from this LP is that no oligo, excuse me, Oligon, <laughs> you got this. oh God, why am I always messing up words? Oligon clon, clonal.
0: clonal uh, is what you're saying.
1: Uh, Good Lord, Mike. See, now we're doing the live show and I've already messed up the wording. But look, like I said, this is not my usual practice. This is something I am going outside the box here. Anyway, our CSF was abnormal, okay, um, because it revealed something else and this is where it gets tricky. Let's say this patient gets admitted. She's got the cognitive decline. The other complicated LP results come back and everything was good until I went back and reviewed the chart and read this result. The total CSF amyloid beta level was 360, and the total CSF tau level was 898. And then it goes on to say the CSF phospho tau level was 117, and the amyloid beta tau index was 0.28. So I know it's already like, oh my God, this is inpatient hospitalist crap. Like, why are we even talking about this on the podcast? Yeah. Because... You really
0: hate to see the uh, the amyloid beta tau index of 0.28. That's just that's classic. Well, if, if <laughs> I had a dime for every time I've seen that, oh my goodness.
1: But I'll tell you, these things are super, super interesting. You know, yeah. boarding is going on in our departments and these tests are coming back and our names are still on these patients, right? So we often swap out is this an emergency hat and this is a primary care hat or a hospitalist hat quite often and i see cases like this and i want to know what happened to them in the admission and what was wrong with them the puzzle pieces are all gathered by me anyway i want to see the whole photograph here i want to know what it means
0: and i can i can just hear people screaming at their their cell phones right now like (laughs) I'm an emergency medicine PA. I'm an emergency nurse practitioner. None of this is has any relevance to me. But guess what? This person cannot perform her activities of daily living. And how many times otherwise do we really focus on people who like, yeah, I can't send this person home. They can't perform the activities of daily living. This person could have something, you know, a, a toxidrome going on. They could really have some sort of thing where you could intervene acutely in their their life and and, and make a big difference. In this case, Martha, early onset Alzheimer's disease was diagnosed in this patient after they were admitted. Um, based on a couple of things, there's this you know, progressive short-term memory loss. There's multiple areas of condition where she was impaired. And also, again, like I mentioned, loss of functions, activities she used to be able to do before the onset of her symptoms. Yeah. Specifically, there are some some diagnostic criteria for dementia that that you can rattle off here.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I can mention a few of them, Mike, but I still want to focus back on what you said for the people that are like, what the hell are these two people doing talking about this? I'm telling you, it's going to make sense to you when you've been practicing for a long time, not only are you going to be searching for more and wanting to know more, but when this patient comes in on these drugs or um, is, is suffering from these conditions or these key words they're telling you, or maybe they had an outpatient MRI and they're like, I got these results and I don't know what they mean. You can look at them right away and say, you know what? This is what that patient has. Not to mention, can I remind you all that this patient is 51 years old? I mean, this is... This is not something to sneeze over, right? They've got um, problems with memory. They've got problems with function. You know, maybe they even have some visual spatial um, abnormalities, language function. Again, there's personality or behavioral issues because they're trying to hide what's going on. And this patient's MRI scan revealed some focal atrophy like we talked about. And this is really significantly associated with underlying Alzheimer's disease pathology. Okay. So again, when you're advancing your clinical practice, when you're trying to really understand things, this is super important for you to know. Why not? Why not look at it? I keep saying that over and over again. Why not know? If you can, why not know? You're not the neurologist that's taking on the whole case. You may not even necessarily be the NP or the PA that's doing the lumbar puncture, but I still don't understand why, you know, we're not kind of taking our practice to the next level when we can. We can help. We're part of the team. So the case goes on to talk a lot about these amyloid levels, about these different levels that are found in the LP. And we don't need to break all of those down. In fact, I think we'll just confuse the listeners if we do. But the bottom line is that the CSF is abnormal. It shows these specific findings of the amyloid beta tau index. And I just want to say specifically... When it's less than one, that's typical of individuals with Alzheimer's disease. So you can look at some of these other fancy terms, complicated stuff that are are really smart neurologists deal with, but you know, this isn't on your everyday diagnosis list, but maybe you're thinking about it now and maybe you're not just going to shoo off these people that are, are, you know, complaining of these issues. You're going to put on your thinking hat and you're going to expand on what you know and you know. Altered mental status is a frequent flyer in the ER, some in distress and some not in distress, but it's important to understand how they present and really understanding what happens to that patient. It makes us better clinicians.
0: Right, Uh, you know, we understand that Alzheimer's dementia is theorized to be caused by these mutations um, and there are these amyloid precursor proteins Pre a genes, presenilin, one and two proteins. So there's a lot of family history. Interestingly enough, um, this patient did not have that apparently. Mm-hmm. Currently, Alzheimer's disease has no cure. There are some cholinesterase inhibitors that help treat it. Um, memantine. Memantine is a generic name for a drug trade name Nemenda, yeah. which is a deaspartate antagonist. So, uh, you know, it's nice, you know, when you see someone who comes in and, you know, look at their med list and they take, you know, memantine, you can kind of know like, oh, that's what that's for.
1: Yeah. So fun fact, in January, 2023, a disease modifying monoclonal antibody for the treatment of early Alzheimer's disease, Le-canumab, um, I believe it's pronounced, received accelerated approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And this class of drugs, it targets these amyloid accumulations in the brain, which is a major feature of Alzheimer's disease, right? So a key tip here here really is for the known dementia patient who comes into the ER, they may also have anxiety and mood disorders. I mentioned this very early on in this conversation, and they might be on SSRIs. So I want you to think, consider the fact that they may not remember that they took their medications and took a whole bunch of SSRIs that morning. And hey, are they at risk for serotonin syndrome? Maybe uh, you know this could be a cause for an accelerated altered mental status state.
0: I think serotonin syndrome will be a good topic to cover next month. I haven't talked about tramadol in at
1: least two or three episodes here. So that'd be great. Oh, God. You said tramadol. Please, no. If you want more information, you can check out the case in our liner notes and read more. And if you want to contribute to Alzheimer's research, check out www.alz.org, the Alzheimer's Association, or the NIH website.
0: Well, switching gears here to PE, uh, you know, when you see that your next patient is a pregnant woman with dyspnea, do you break out in a cold sweat too? A pulmonary embolism should definitely be in your differential somewhere, but how do you decide whether to scan them for a PE or not with the radiation involved? Most of us have heard about the Wells Criteria, a risk stratification system for people you clinically suspect may have a PE, but the Wells Criteria has not been validated in pregnancy. Enter the year's algorithm, relatively new, 2017, and validated in pregnant women. It goes like this. If you are concerned about a PE and also suspect a DVT in this pregnant woman, then step one is the leg ultrasound and anticoagulating if it's positive for a DVT. Just skip the CT. You're going to treat the, the DVT anyways, and you're going to treat you know, a PE if it's there without exposure to the radiation. If you don't suspect DVT or the ultrasound is negative, you go to step two. Order that. D-dimer, uh, I get, you know, shivers <laughs> by saying that. And if it's equal to or greater than 500 nanograms per milliliter, order that CTHS to look for a PE. If the D-dimer is less than 500, then the PE is pretty well ruled out. You can kind of stop there. That's the year's algorithm. It's different in non-pregnant patients, but you can look the whole thing up on lndcalc.com. There was a recent systematic review and meta-analysis serma of different potential methods of screening pregnant women for possible PE, and ideally excluding them from CT scanning if possible, like when it's safe, you know. This is from a March 2023 issue from the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. They use an extra A in hemostasis, H-A-E-M-O. You get the idea. So, you know they're not screwing around over there, right? This serma included two studies of almost 900 pregnant women in which they compared the years algorithm we discussed versus various forms of the Wells criteria. In the end, they were all pretty good with 98% sensitivity from the years algorithm and the Wells criteria without adjusted DNMR thresholds for clinical predest probability. There's other ones that do adjust, but I digress. Failure rate was lowest for the year's algorithm at 0.37% with a confidence interval between 0.01 and 2.3, still pretty low. The study authors felt it was reasonable to use some sort of risk stratification method to attempt to rule out PE in pregnant women. Just the concept was reasonable, basically. Uh, if I had to pick one, I think the most defensible one to pick is that year's algorithm because it is validated in pregnant women. Not something that I learned about in PA school because I graduated before two thousand seventeen. Uh, Martha, do you have a go to in this situation? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so we absolutely do use this where we practice, and we also use the the gestalt of the people working. But again, you know, um, it all depends on who you are working with, right? So, uh, what's most important to me, though, is you know how much I love our specialists. I love involving them in the care and I love looking at their guidelines, practice bulletins, you know, things that ASAP says, things that we know are tried and true and are acceptable, things that guide our practice in a way that, that you know, um, our friend in the ER for 20 years doesn't necessarily always do, right? So I want to give a word here, a homage to ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology's practice bulletin. Women who are pregnant or in postpartum period have a four to five fold increased risk of thromboembolism compared to non-pregnant women, period. Okay. So we already know this is a thing. Approximately 80% of thromboembolic events in pregnancy are venous with a prevalence of 0.5 to 2 per 1,000 pregnant women. And this is cited by six various studies with links on on their page and ours. VTE is one of the leading causes of maternal mortality in the United States. That accounts for almost 10% of all maternal deaths. So if I'm looking for one of the 10 causes of maternal death, if it be a PE or another, I want to make sure I exclude it. Using these tools, a guided approach with the input from our specialists like OBGYNs, our attending MDs on site, our NP colleagues we've practiced with, yes, Help us make the right choice to scan or not to scan. And as Stuart Squadron would say, though, (laughs) the road to hell is paved with D-dimers and BNPs, but we don't have time for BNPs today.
0: Yeah, we'll do that in the next episode for sure. (laughs) Well, we're calling our last segment the oral contrast segment where we get into all the nooks and crannies of a topic. And this one's a doozy, but it's super important in my opinion.
1: Oh boy, Mike, all right, well, I'm going to take a deep breath because we've been yes, talking about please. a lot of things, right? Um, what I think is most important here, and I know you mentioned this later, but I'm kind of free, freeballing, balling, spitballing, whatever, gosh, you know, whatever the term yeah, is.
0: The second one's probably better.
1: <laughs> what I wanted to say is that your institution is going to do a lot of different things, okay? This is not the final word, end all, be all. This is just what what we've accumulated from these guidelines. And so you really do need to be specific about what your hospital wants. But yes, let's talk about medical decision-making, specifically the medical decision-making portion of our charting, whether you're an EM or urgent care. If you're a longtime listener, you'll remember that we actually did... um, A whole lot of information here on history, review of systems, past medical and surgical history, physical exam. You know, my favorite thing, physical exam, 95% will tell you your diagnosis way back in episode four. I think that we give some great tips there about how to streamline your charting and how to make it work for you.
0: And yeah, I I was going to make this all about like the MDM for everything like EM and urgent care, but I realized there's just like too much to talk about in the emergency medicine aspect, okay? So, um, still good though, if you are in urgent care, hey, maybe you wanna take a gig on emergency medicine. You need to know that this is kind of the landscape you'd be walking into. We are all about the MDMs, baby. Um, with the 2023 coding changes in emergency medicine, the MDM takes on an even bigger role than it already was, your coding is almost completely tied to the MDM portion of your chart. We're talking about what's called e and codes, evaluation and management codes, codes that describe how complex a patient was. The more complex a patient was, the more you can bill for that patient, and the more revenue you bring in for your department. And if you don't see it, Trust me, there is someone out there who is keeping an eye on how much you earn or lose for your department. You've probably heard about a bunch of new info you've been asked to chart about in the MDM like, yeah, Did you give parental control substances? Did you use prescription drugs in the management of your patient? Social determinants of health, independent interpretation of imaging. I'm seeing people doing like 10 point coding checklists, having to fill in text in every line with whether they did or didn't do a certain thing. And uh, you might be thinking, like I was in January, I thought this was supposed to save me time. (laughs) The answer is it will if you know how.
1: Always if you know how, Mike. Our goals you know today how. yeah, are to make it clearer, really, about what information supports different levels of complexity in the chart and what information or documentation of certain tasks can be skipped over, basically, from a coding perspective. So let's understand what's important to capture and what is charting fluff so that we won't move the needle. Let's cut out the fluff and save you that time. And Mike, you really, you did a good job going through all this. I'm, I'm really happy you did this and I'm glad I didn't have to. Uh,
0: it, it I You know, it's one of those things where it's like, you start doing it and you're like, oh, it, it should only take this long. And then you start realizing like, oh, to really make it something someone can listen to and understand... It takes a little time. So, so bear with us, guys. I think this will be really important here, and you're going to be happy that you stuck with this. The primary source for this new coding information is the American Medical Association's document on CPT E&M code and guideline changes, effective January 1, 2023. There's also a really great one pager. That is shared by asap on their resources page for these new changes that summarize the important points we're going to go over check the show notes for links and this is the first time we've even mentioned our show notes for today this is going to be at uh that's the number two view.fireside.fm every single document we mention on this podcast every previous podcast will be at our show notes. So look for all these coding kind of cheat sheets there and other links to other pages.
1: So, you know, we always have an interesting relationship with uh, the AMA. They've said some things that, you know, have been hurtful. But I will say that we're not speaking on the behalf of any organization. Uh, who we work for, currently. we don't work for, whatever. Um, we're not advocating for anyone to buff the evaluation in their chart, you know, order more tests that are medically unnecessary, right? So a lot of arguments, you know, in previous studies where certain people have said NPs and PAs order more tests because they don't know what to do. You know, so I don't want someone else listening to this podcast to come back and say like, oh, here's another reason why NPs or PAs are ordering more tests. That's not it at all. Or we're charting more things. No, we're just trying to help you give the liter- literally the guidelines that the physicians are using. So um, there's no reason why we can't also do the same thing that they're doing because we're charting those things as well. And we work with them as a team. So, um, you know, don't want to go too far off the ledge here, Mike. Um, But we don't want people to be digging through old charts or consulting if it's not necessary. And we don't want people to be overstating the significance of the illness or the injury, period.
0: Right. What we're trying to do today is just talk plainly about these changes Charting was a heavy enough burden before 2023, and for a lot of people, this is adding to the burden. That's making charting and interacting with EMR harder. Uh, we know these things are already major dissatisfiers to EM clinicians, the computer work, the charting, the EMR. We don't think these billing changes this year have to be this hard. I think there are ways that eventually... There'll be built-in features into some of these EMRs that will minimize the need to use the resources we're using today, but we're just not there right now. Uh, I want to approach this from a different angle, I think, than anybody else I've ever you know, heard or read uh, mentioning these guidelines, because I think there's a lot of kind of like... Um, you know, dancing around some things like no one wants to be seen, especially if they work in documentation for a big company. No one wants to be um, looked at as if like, oh, you're just trying to help people upcode. That's not what we want today. We're not trying to get you to upcode. We want you to get to this coding business and charting business fast, 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 fast write down the bare minimum, and then move on to the next patient. We want to keep you guys happy as best we can, as much as we can uh, retain responsibility for that in your job. Even though there's a ton of stuff you could write in an MDM section, like you mentioned, this 10-point coding checklist. In the end, when it comes to E&M coding, there's only five E&M codes for emergency department visits. And they are 99281, 99282, 99283, 99284 and 99285. No matter how many paragraphs of things you write about that you did in the MDM, you'll eventually end up with one of those five codes. We're gonna keep it simple. We're just gonna refer to these by the last number in the code: a level one ENM, level two, three, four, or five ENM codes.
1: Okay, so level one are those extraordinarily simple visits that in the AMA's words, may not require the presence of a physician or other qualified healthcare professional. They need a work note or after a previous visit, they needed you know, uh, documentation that they were there. They're there for a social worker consult. Maybe they left prior to their prior workup being complete and they didn't get their full discharge instructions. Maybe there's no real history examination or medical decision-making going on. A level two is a situation for straightforward complexity. Level three, low complexity. Level four, moderate complexity. And get this, level five, high complexity.
0: Nailed it. Okay. Well, how does a chart meet the criteria for each of these ENM codes for each level? One, two, three, four, five. Quick review of some of these terms that we're going to be talking about coming up here. There's your overall. ENM code, your evaluation and management code, that's levels 1 through 5, just mention that. You're in those codes based on the requirements you meet in three different elements. So in this hierarchy under the under the element scores are categories. So meeting the requirements for the categories help determine your element score, element scores determine your overall ENM code. So again, imagine this pyramid, right? On the top is the ENM code. ENM code. Below that elements, below that categories. It's a pyramid.
1: All right. So let's rewind back to the elements. Like we said, there are three elements of information that go into your MDM and determine your overall E&M score. The first element is number and complexity of problems addressed. So we'll call that problems for short. And the second element is amount and or complexity of data to be reviewed or analyzed. So we'll call that data data. <laughs> And the third element is risk of complications and other morbidity and mortality of the patient management. So we'll shorten that to risk. So think about this. Ready? Here we go. Problems, data, risk. Those are our three elements.
0: And again, elements build into your overall E&M code. Just like those E&M codes for encounters requiring medical decision making are levels two, three, four, or five, those overall codes you're going to have to end up with at the end. Each one of these elements that build into your E and M code, so a problem element, data element, risk element, these can also be scored at a two, three, four, or five. At the end of the day, you pick your two highest element scores for a patient. The lower of those two highest scores is what your overall chart EM code will be, and the bottom score has no impact. For example, an encounter with a level five problem, level five data and level two risk, so five, five, two, that's gonna be a level five chart overall. Your EM code will be level five. The top two scores are five, the lower those two scores is a five, it's a level five chart. Now, different chart, different patient, you have a level five problem, level four data, level two risk, it's five, four, two, that's gonna be considered a level four chart overall. The top two scores are four and five, the lower of the two is the four. For each of those encounters, there was a level two element and it did not impact the overall EM code at all. It's just kind of it's tossed out in terms of determining your ENM code.
1: Yeah. So let's do things a little backwards compared to what most people are doing. So let's start with a level five ENM coding, also known as the high medical decision making and what is required to get there. How do we get to that highest level, the number five? Like we just mentioned, pick your two highest element scores between the problem, the data, the risk to get to the level 5 ENM code. Your two highest element scores both have to be a five. Doesn't matter which two of the three elements are a five, but they both need to be a five. And unless at least two of them are a five, you're not getting the level 5 ENM code, no matter how much you document. So how do you know you get a five on each of your element scores?
0: Okay. So again, problems, data, and risk. Let's kind of go one at a time here. For the problem element to get a five, the patient has to have a problem, which is defined as anything they come in concerned about or anything you discover. Any one of those things is a problem. So the problem has to either be a chronic illness with a severe exacerbation, progression, or some sort of side effects to treatment, or they have an illness or injury, acute or chronic, the pros is a threat to life or bodily function to include, you know, like a, you know, organ function or, or, or limb or eye function here. How severe something is or whether something is a threat to life or bodily function is kind of subjective, frankly, and it can even be how the patient describes it. So this is where someone's saying, you know, their pain is 11 out of 10 might finally, you know, come in handy for us. Well, that's your problem element. How about your data element? Next element. If you feel like these 2023 changes have really slowed you down, this is it. This is where you really are probably wasting time, honestly, and where you need to listen up real tightly. A lot of people waste time documenting a ton of stuff in the data element because we run a lot of tests and we we you know look up a lot of charts and stuff. We consult a lot of people in the ER, but some of this stuff does not move the needle towards a higher E&M code because you didn't do certain other things that would do move the needle. To get a five on data, you're gonna to have to either independently interpret a test like imaging or an EKG, labs don't count here, or consult someone on a different service and communicate with them about the uh, management or a test that was ordered something. Communicate with them about something about the patient's care. Remember how we talked about categories earlier, right? So we have like EM code up top, elements below that, and then below elements, your categories. That pyramid? There are two separate categories of data. These are two of them: independent interpretation and consultation. There are three total categories of data, like legs in a stool. I'm mixing this pyramids, legs in a stool. Maybe it's too many little imaging theories, but basically there's three categories that make up your data element. You have to fulfill two of those three categories to get a five on data. And consulting a a PA or an NP in your department or even an EM physician does not count for consultation. You have to consult somebody outside of your service.
1: So please work with your EM team and document when you talk to your attending. I'm just saying it doesn't budge the needle when it comes to EM coding. If neither one of those things, independent of interpretation or consultation, are done in the course of a patient's care, it is impossible to get a five on data. Or even if you manage to get a five on your data element, if you don't also have a five on either your problem or your risk element, you're not getting a five overall e code anyways. And the coding and billing is only derived from the overall code. So you get no bonus points for getting a five on your data element if your overall e code is a four. Also, um, you can order 30 tests and review 20 other tests from previous encounters, look at 10 other charts, talk to five independent historians, those all count for the third party category of your data element.
0: Right. Well, like we said earlier, you have to fulfill two categories to get a five on data, right? So categories build make your element score. So don't go crazy documenting the heck out of these tests and chart reviews, history interviews in your MDM to try to get a five if you haven't independently interpreted or consulted. If neither one of those things happen, it is just impossible to fulfill two of the three categories on data and impossible to get a five. On the flip side, if you did both of these things, independent interpretation and consultation, That's two categories. You've already gotten your five, and it's another reason not to go overboard from a coding perspective, documenting all your different data points.
1: All right, so we mentioned how ordering or reviewing tests, reviewing charts, and talking to independent historians, they all count towards one category of your data element. Let's focus on that briefly. We're going to call this the potpourri data category. You need to do a combination of three of any of those things I just mentioned to check off the potpourri data uh, category, ordering a test, reviewing a test, reviewing a chart, uh, talking to an independent historian. It's assumed that if you order a test, you're going to review the results. So you don't get one point for ordering a test and another point for reviewing the same test. Reviewing previous tests from previous encounters, however, does count as a point for every test reviewed. Reviewing a chart from outside of your service, so another department, that the patient was seen by or another ED or outside facility, each one of those charts counts as one point.
0: You're doing great, folks. You're listening along. You're really getting this I can hear out there. If not, you can always rewind back. And we're also going to show other stuff here, some visual um, stuff on the YouTube here. By the way, the YouTube is Center for Medical Education. You can go there on YouTube or just go to ccmelive.org and you'll be directed towards our YouTube page. We'll have some visual stuff coming up here shortly. All right. Again, remember EM code elements and then your categories. Once you hit three points in this potpourri data category, you've satisfied this category from a coding perspective. You do not get any further coding credit after you've hit three points. Like document the other stuff you did, like checking charts and like talking to historians, if it seems to help for like continuity of care or medical legal protection or just patient care overall. But just don't beat a dead horse in documenting what you did in this potpourri data category, thinking it's going to further help your coding. It's not going to do that. If you order three tests, like you're done, like you've already gotten the three things you can get in that potpourri category. You do that, and then either independently interpret or consult, you've gotten your five on data by doing those two things. Now, if you've already managed to get a five on your problem element, right? Some sort of serious problem they're coming in for exacerbation, whatever else here, because the pace had a pretty serious problem and a five on your data element. So two of those three categories we just talked about. Congratulations. You have your level five E&M code overall. There's no bonus points for spending a bunch of time documenting how you've qualified for a five. And the third element, the risk element, which we're going to talk about in a second here, on top of the five you've already earned, there's no level six, you know, but say you're still needing one more element score of five. Let's talk about the last element, risk. Probably the most common situation in which we have a higher risk patient, level five risk element is the use of parental controlled substances if you gave im or im opioids or benzos then there you go and again i'm not recommending you give everyone that drug that starts with a d just to buff your chart but these are just common medications to give in the ed don't forget ketamine i mean how could we forget ketamine and pentobarbital as well for seizures what are some other ways to get this level five risk element martha
1: If there is a drug therapy requiring, you know, intensive monitoring like warfarin or decision regarding elective major surgery with identified patient or procedural risk factors, right? Did they sign that piece of paper that says I'm consenting to this? A decision regarding emergency major surgery, a decision regarding hospitalization or escalation of hospital level care or a decision not to resuscitate or deescalate care because of a poor prognosis. Any one of those things could earn a level five for your risk element. You don't have to send the patient to surgery as described, hospitalize them, or even have a DNR. But those things were something reasonable to consider. And in the end, the decision was made not to do the thing. Mention that in your MDM and you will also get a level five risk element.
0: Right. That was always the rap about these coding changes. Like, you don't have to CT scan somebody. If you thought about CT scanning them, then that counts as a data point. And so, for all of these things, if you just consider doing that thing, then you get credit as if you had done it. At this point, maybe you're thinking yourself like, "I may not have many encounters that rise to level five EM coding," and that is actually what a lot of departments are seeing or projecting. The number of level five EM encounters compared to the old days, pre 2023, are going down on the flip side we are seeing more level 4 enm encounters than we used to um, let's talk about level 4 or moderate medical decision making something that in many departments frankly is is kind of easy to attain A reminder how do you get a level 4 enm counter again enm code elements and then categories that's the three tiers here your top two element scores have to be either a 4 and a 5 or two fours that's how you get a level 4 enm code we already know how to get fives. Let's talk about what's required to get your level four element scores. Let's start with the level four problem score. Remember, problems, data, risk. Lots of possibilities here the encounter could involve one or more chronic illnesses with exacerbation, progression, or side effects of treatment. Like, is your patient have a history of hypertension or diabetes? And they're above their goal blood pressure or above their goal blood glucose, then they could be considered as having a chronic illness with exacerbation. The next one is funny, and I'm going to have Martha kind of tee off on this, two or more stable chronic illnesses. What does that mean in this context, Martha?
1: Well, a few words on what stable means. Um, A stable illness when it comes to these 2023 coding changes means that they're at the goal for their disease process. So if you ask me medically if a patient with diabetes has no symptoms, was stable or unstable with a blood glucose of 250, that's a stable patient medically. But for coding purposes, that person would be considered as having an exacerbation of their disease. So a person with a high blood pressure diagnosis or diabetes is at goal, when they're at goal, they could be considered as having two or more stable chronic illnesses. If you consider the illnesses during your encounter and comment on the MDM on the stability of these illnesses and how they should continue outpatient management. The person could have a paper cut, but you could also perform the workup necessary to achieve a level four problem score.
0: And you know, when you're in this game long enough, you're already doing this work. Like in seconds, you are scanning their medical history, you're looking at, you know, their glucose, their, you know, um, blood pressure, and you do that in seconds and then you move on and you don't think about the work that you've just done. still cognitive work that you do even considering do i get a blood sugar in this patient who um, has diabetes but as those symptoms just the fact that you consider getting a blood glucose that kind of counts so you might as well get credit for it somewhere moving on to other problems that meet level four criteria one undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis so like chest pain abdominal pain a funny headache with time of the disposition. You don't really know quite what's going on here, but you rule that emergency to your satisfaction. All those kinds of patient problems fit into this category. How about one acute illness with systemic symptoms? So initially, I thought like this was stuff from like a viral URI with chills. Like that's an acute illness. There's systemic symptoms, chills, bingo, bango, you've got that code, but that's not the case. From the CBT manual from the AMA for coding. Purposes, Coding purposes, an acute illness with systemic symptoms is an acute illness with a high risk of mortality if left untreated. So pyelo with like fever, colitis with chills, maybe even a bacterial skin infection with some sort of constitutional symptom, myalgias would qualify. Other systemic symptoms a patient could be having are fatigue and just malaise. You kind of feel crappy.
1: One last problem that could be coded as level four One acute complicated injury. Again, from the CPT manual, this is an injury which requires treatment that includes evaluation of body systems that are not directly part of the injured organ. The injury is extensive or the treatment options are multiple and or associated with risk of morbidity. A fall or an MVC where there are multiple body parts potentially injured or maybe head trauma with concerns for some sort of brain injury are good examples.
0: All right. So remember, problems, data, risk. There are three elements. That was the level four problem score, what's required there. Let's talk about what's required to get a level four data element. You just need to satisfy one of those data categories. We mentioned when we were talking about a level five data score. Level five means two categories, level four just one category. You could independently interpret an x-ray or an EKG. That's got you right there, your level four data element. You already got level four just by doing that one thing. Or you could just consult somebody outside of your service. That gets you a level four data element, just doing that one thing. Or you fulfill three of those like potpourri data items we were talking about earlier. Reviewing tests, ordering tests, reviewing an outside chart, or talking to an independent historian. You do three of those things. That gets you a four. So like how many times we order three tests on someone like CBC, CMP lipase so often. So this is not hard to get there. How about the level four risk score? There are many aspects of risk in many of your patients that you probably always deal with regularly. And Martha, I want you to rattle these off because the last one is kind of, I think, near and dear to your heart.
1: So prescription drug management. Did you give them a prescription? Did you send them home with one? Did you document? Did you consider it? Are you continuing something they're already on? Then a decision regarding minor surgery with identified patient or procedural risk factors. A decision regarding elective major surgery without identified patient or procedural risk factors. There is some subjectivity involved in deciding whether surgery is minor or major surgery. And then diagnosis or treatment significantly limited by social determinants of health. Okay, so I wanna spend a little time on this last one. If you Google AMA, actually what was this that you Googled, Mike?
0: Yeah. So it's AMA SDOH, so Social Determinants of Health, or SDOH. So AMA SDOH Z PDF. What happens I know it's if, you, a mouthful.
1: What if you just write in social determinants of health? That's what I would have written. <laughs>
0: There's so many different kinds of like websites that come up, but if you Google this in particular, this string in particular, you get the PDF that is like the most specific thing you're going to want. So like, feel free to, to hunt around. And by the way, it'll be on our website too, viewfiresidefm the number two view, of course. That PDF is, is linked right there directly. But if you're just driving around and this kind of sticks in your craw, then yeah, you can just Google this search string. You got to use Google and you'll find this PDF that you're going to talk about here.
1: Yeah. I I looked at the PDF, but I'm like, what did you Google to find it? I just looked at the link that you sent me. So I'm just- That's that's good too. Yeah. I I had to clarify that. So yes, Yes. you look at this PDF and it's a list of potential social determinants of health by ICD-10 code. And they all start with Z. If someone's social determinants of health Affected your encounter. They're uninsured. They're underinsured. They're suffering from homelessness. There are health literacy issues. They are just moved now, new to the area. They're in the ED as some part of legal process. Maybe they're accompanied by police. These are all factors into which how you cared for the patient or the aftercare. And that gets you a level four data element. A best practice would be a diagnosis um, with a patient. Excuse me. The best practice would be to diagnose the patient with their z code in addition to their medical problems so it's clear
0: right so you diagnose them with chest pain and uh, you know legal issues whatever let's see if i can look it up right now so we'll pull that up here in a second um there'll be a section in which i throw it to dave he's gonna pull this up yeah there's a z code that is um hmm there's a legal one yeah mm-hmm. z65 um problems related to other psychosocial circumstances including um imprisonment incarceration etc okay so we've talked a lot about theory and god bless you for hanging on through that last part i think that it's going to take frankly some time it took me some time to kind of like nug through this and how do i explain this well it will probably take you some time to listen back through this once or twice to really get it uh, but Let's talk about some tactics. How do you actually manage all this information on the fly on your shift? In addition to, you know, not killing anybody that you're taking care of. We talked on episode 24 about this easy EM coding calculator from MD Calc. If you search on the internet for MD Calc 2023, it's going to be your first hit. And Dave, I'm going to throw it to you now. I'm going to share my screen just so I can have this on the screen while I'm talking about it because it's going to be just you know, a lot easier for folks to like look at while I'm talking. So I'm sharing my screen now. Here we go. So this is the MD Calc calculator, this 2023 emergency medicine coding guide. Again, you just Google MD Calc 2023. It's your first hit. You're probably driving along or doing some sort of extreme sport right now because we're all EM clinicians, right? But when you get to a computer, just pull up this calculated MD Calc called the 2023 emergency medicine coding guide. And then listen to this part of the segment again. If you're not by a computer, don't worry about it. Just listen along. It'll still make sense. This calculator was... Really helpful for me to dumb down exactly what I needed to spend time charting in my MDM to affect my coding. So what I do tactically is this. I have my EMR pulled up and I have, you know, whatever internet browser pulled up in another window. And I have this website pulled up and I consult it quickly. Every time I'm at the MDM section, in someone's chart, like it's very easy to uh, just click over and click a few buttons and see where I'm at. Like the other calculators on MD Calc, the final score is spit out at the bottom of the page. So I quickly fill it out. It's The, the bottom part is four lines. And I just highlight, and I copy, and I paste. Control-C, Control-V, if you're on a, a PC, and it, it moves it over to your chart. It's four lines. Um, and I'm, I'm going to circle it kind of right here on the screen. So here you go. You can see this laser pointer here. That's the the thing I copy. Okay, line one's the estimated level of service, your E&M code. And then there's a line for each of the different elements we've been talking about, problem, risk, data. I just copy that whole thing over and I make some quick notes about what that, why I got those scores. So let's say I have this. And again, it makes sense if you're watching the screen. If not, just bear with me. So let's say I did enough to get a problem score moderate. That's a four, risk score is high. Five, I gave them some... Dilala or whatever, and the data, let's say I did moderate. I, I did three tests here. So you can see now on our website, um, the, 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 the visual version, again, it's um, ccmelive.org. You can be seeing this with me. You see at the bottom of the calculator, you have these four lines. You have four estimated level of service, problems, moderate, four, risk, high, five, data, moderate, four. So I just take my cursor and I, I highlight, copy, paste over. And then I kind of like manually type in next to each thing. Four, I say, you know, undiagnosed problem with uncertain outcome, whatever got me my four. Next to five, I'll type in my EMR, parental controlled substance or whatever got me my five, like a social determinants of health kind of thing. Data moderate, four, I type next to this, I I ordered three tests or whatever I did. And that's it. You You do a quick clicking on the MD calc, you copy this over, and then you write your justification on why you did those things. And I forgot, you forgot what you did. It's right there on MD calc's thing telling you what you did to earn those scores. That's it. You don't have to write out like this 10 point coding checklist because some of this stuff is going to be redundant or not contributory here. There is an option to copy the entire calculator into your chart with all these entries you made, but it makes the chart look a little bit busy, in my opinion. Having that AMA uh, PDF with the social determinants of health Z codes is another option for quick reference to, um, Dave, I don't know if my screen is still shared. I think it is. So here is what that looks like. So it looks like this at the start here, ICD-10-CM coding for social determinants of health. And you scroll down and, oh my gosh, aren't there so many beautiful Z codes right there. And you, you diagnose a patient with those Z codes and it can get you quickly a level four for your um. That would be your risk element. So that's that.
1: Okay. So, Mike, I got two things to say. Well, actually, you know, I, always <laughs> have, I have more things to say always, but this is what I would like to say. We can't cover everything when it comes to these new coding changes. No doubt that your hospital where care practice has gone over this with you, we actually do have a course on ccme.org that goes into even more detail with a 2023 coding change expert lecture. It's put together. It's called Mastering Acute Care Charting 2023 Updates if you need that next level of information about the coding changes, and that would be an excellent place to get it. But this is the second thing I have to say. And I think we started off by mentioning this right on. So we can teach you all the things. Um, our colleagues can teach us all the things. Our, the guidelines can help us learn the things. Um, but the key to care is to sh- is to really highlight the important facts in the chart. I don't care if it gets me higher or lower billing. I mean, quite frankly, this is just a pain in the ass. You know, I Rick and I have talked about these things before um and I'm not going to I'm not going to include something in my chart that's important. Like for whatever reason, let's go back to that 51-year-old dementia patient. Like maybe I got some extra things about which specific characters on TV she couldn't remember. I don't know. Some of these things help us figure out problems. And yes, of course, I want to follow the guidelines. Of course, I want the hospital to make the money they deserve. I really don't care whether our, you know, my code is going to get an upcode or not. That's not important to me. I want to do what the hospital wants me to do and I need to do what they what they need me to do. But the key to care is to highlight the important facts about the patient so that the patient gets good care. So don't get lost in this. Don't get lost in the world of charting. Do your thing. If you think it's important, put it in there. But again, if you really just don't want to have to think about it, use the MD Calc page and just plug your crap in.
0: Yeah, I think in the end like even though I put a lot of thought into this and um you know I understand this, you know, potentially more than some in the end I'm still using the MD calc page every single time I chart because I want this to be fast. I don't want to rely on like, it's like having to look up certain things. Like I'd rather just look up a thing than memorize the thing. I'll just leave that part of my brain for something else to something I really need to memorize. So for this, I really don't think you have to memorize all these things I just talked about, but I think it's important to like, understand the concept. So when somebody else next to you is like, well, I'm doing all like this 10 point coding checklist, like you can go, okay, got it. But unless someone's like mandating you do this thing, mm-hmm. you don't have to do that. And yeah. look, I-, I totally get it. Like the-, the secret to caring is caring for the patient. Like, yes, I've heard that before as well. But in the end, people listening have mortgages to pay. Oh, and I know. some of them have the RVUs, Pay their salary, like whatever they code, pays their salary. So, I, I this should not take precedence over actually caring for the patient. Like the whole point of me wanting to do this, and I know, like, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying, and I'm not upset. But the whole point of me spending time here and us spending time here is because I don't want any of this to interfere with caring for the patient.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's
0: I, I want clear. us to, yeah. Well. I, I, that is my intent. Anyone listening here who was like, wow, Mike really cares about dollar bills here. I mean, I got a mortgage to pay too. In the end though, what I care about is I want to do the bare minimum here, frankly, from a coding and billing perspective because I don't get into this for that. However, I also don't want to do the wrong things in terms of um, not billing properly because someone's going to yell me about that, I'm sure. At whatever job I may or may not work at. Um, and also what's going to happen is this, is that I'll spend too much time on this coding and not worry about the other stuff. So like, I I just, I see in multiple facilities where I work, I see folks spending a lot of time on this. And so that's the whole point of going into this care for your patients, consult whoever you got to consult, do the right things here, understand we're here as a resource for you to kind of like burn through this people out there who are struggling who already struggled with charting to begin with. And now we're just freaking out because it's like, oh my gosh, this pays my salary. I don't know what I'm doing here. I just have to just chart a half an hour worth of stuff on every patient because I want to make sure I get every single cent out of my RVU codes, my enem codes here. It doesn't have to be this hard. I hope that was be clear during this last segment. Our email address is toviewcast at gmail.com if you're struggling with these charting issues or frankly struggling with anything in your emergency medicine practice like, hit us up like Martha and I have sh- struggled in different places in our careers and we've kind of struggled more and struggled less. And we're all at kind of various, you know, points of struggle in our careers. And we've been there. We- we've sat in your seat and we've had those hard shifts and those hard hours after our shift. Like, what am I doing? Should I still be doing this? Um, how can I make this easier? Um, we're here for you. Two of you cast, at gmail.com to viewcast at gmail.com is actually also where you would send your answers in for our trivia question, which is coming mm-hmm. up next. Yes. So um I, I, I'll go first here. We talked about tasers on our last episode here. And our trivia question was this taser is an acronym. What does it stand for? And what is the neurology theme name of the company that makes taser brand devices so taser stands for tom a swift electric rifle and taser brand devices are made by axon in the good old us of a just so it's clear we the two of you are not partial to any particular brand of energy device we're not sponsored by axon although i love for that to happen i'd be kind of cool to be sponsored by a a taser company could i get a free taser by the way if if that was the case i'll take a free i'll take mine in orange please safety orange (laughs) exactly the winner, I'd love to announce them, but they, out of respect to them, they asked to remain anonymous, so we'll keep it on the down low. That's cool. Live your life. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, they just didn't want any attention drawn to them, but it's uh, it's definitely um, someone we really appreciate as listeners, so thank you. Yes. So, new question this month. What famous American love goddess actress, dancer, and performer died of Alzheimer's disease in 1987? And what famous movie showcased her as a femme fatale in her first major dramatic role? Email us your two-part answer in addition to anyone you'd like to give a shout-out to, as well as any feedback or comments about any episode, to the email address, the number two, viewcast at gmail.com. That's viewcast at gmail.com. And well... I almost read the answer, which I'm not going to do. Good <laughs> all...
0: job. Uh. <laughs>
1: all
0: right. Well, look, more information on what we're looking forward to here. Just a few short months. The original emergency medicine boot camp. Also, the advanced emergency medicine boot camp. That coding course, Mastering Acute Chair Carding, Care Charting. Sorry. The emergency medicine and acute care course. I know our buddy Ken Millen just got back from Hilton Head, South Carolina. Beautiful in that part of the country. I love it there. Any of our courses are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That's www.ccme.org, www.ccme.org.
1: So new and upcoming courses this year include so many fun things. Very exciting. I, I had to have more enthusiasm, but now it's nine o'clock. Very tired, Mike. we <laughs> have been talking for a long time. But look, seriously, our courses are so freaking fun. I mean, I don't do this, you know. I do it for free, but don't tell Rick. It is a blast. Okay, we've got our acute care series courses, online programs, heart course, farm course, and more. Mike and I are prepping our slides, like we said, for our July boot camp. I said the dates are. I'm um, going to be announced here. They're July 25th through the 28th, and our procedures course, ultrasound and farm course are offered two days in person, live, before the camp. There's still open spots. So check out our website for more information. And again, that's at Caesars Palace. And we really hope we see you there.
0: The iconic Caesars, I love that. Uh, and one more thing, a new course that I want to highlight. We just kind of, I kind of went off a little bit about how uh, everyone struggles in emergency medicine and urgent care. Because, um, you know, not everyone does them because they're hard. Um, you're doing this maybe partially because it is hard. and And there is some kind of like, it's cool to do a hard thing. Um, but it's so hard to do hard things. There is a new course we're doing called the the Flourishing in Medicine course, right? It's about how do I self-regulate in this difficult career we've chosen? Again, ccme.org is where you can find more information about that. How can you kind of take control of this career and and, and kind of make it your own? Well, thank you for listening and attending this episode of The Two View Live. Thanks to our listeners here. You could subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts. Google Podcasts and Spotify, search for two-view emergency. That's the number two-view emergency. It'll come right up. Ratings help us on the charts so other clinicians can get some two-view goodness. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog, you want to see the MD Cal calculator, the PDF from the AMA, uh, get some two view goodness and search for the Center for Medical Education website on YouTube to search for Center for Medical Education on YouTube or type in ccmelive.org and you can catch the video versions of this podcast. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics, all the documents, the studies, um, the websites, they're all there. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Guys, thanks for helping us go live tonight. I know it's kind of a last second thing, but like super job I work on the fly here. Show notes are by Meg Dibble. Thanks, Meg.
1: Thank you again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today on The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift.